Climate Law Matters. Interview with Stephen Troman's KC, part four. Hello, listener. Welcome back to our podcast, Climate Law Matters. My name is Steph David, and I'm a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers. And I'm Stephen Troman's KC, also at 39 Essex Chambers. In today's episode, Stephen and I are going to explore further possible principles that can be deployed in environmental judicial review cases. Last time we considered the precautionary principle, and today we're going to look at the public trust doctrine. So Stephen, Mrs. Justice Lang granted permission to proceed to the Marine Conservation Society, Richard Howard's Oysters and Hugo Tagholm in mid-February in respect of their challenge to the Storm Overflows Reduction Plan, which it is contended will allow untreated sewage into water bodies. The claimants depend on the coastal waters for their livelihood or recreational use and or campaign to protect the marine environment. Um, We will return to this case in our next episode in respect of challenges based on convention rights. But for present purposes, the claimants argue the plan is contrary to the public trust doctrine, which is that the state has a fiduciary duty to protect vital natural resources for both current and future generations. So Stephen, what's your view as to how this doctrine could be deployed in climate change litigation, particularly as a vehicle through which to consider intergenerational justice? Okay, Stephanie. Well, it's exactly the sort of thing to make environmental lawyers salivate, isn't it? It's the sort of adventurous, buccaneering thinking that a judge like Lord Denning in his heyday might have deployed or embraced. But if we go back to the roots of the public trust doctrine, we find it can be traced back to the early 13th century. Henry de Bracton, I think his name gets pronounced in different ways by different people, but he was one of the leading jurists of his day. And he wrote that by natural law, these are common to all intermediate people, that running water, air, the sea, and the shores of the sea, as though they were accessories of the sea. No one, he said, is forbidden access to the seashore. All rivers and ports are public, so that the right to fish therein is common to all persons. So I suppose that makes sense in the day when one was looking at the balance of rights between perhaps a rather grasping monarch and his subjects. And of course, Bracton was speaking of natural law as lawyers and clerics then understood it, not the extensive ways now in which that natural law has been or is modified by statute. That seemed to me a key point when you're considering what Sam Bracton said. But we do find, I think, don't we, that the doctrine has come up in a few recent cases. Yes. So it was considered by the Supreme Court in a 2015 case. So it was the case of New Haven Port and Properties Limited against East Sussex County Council. But it was deployed in a slightly different context there. It was in the context of recreational use Um, in contrast to the case for which Mrs. Justice Lang gave permission, which is essentially a kind of broader point regarding gaining a living from the coastal waters. So cultivation of oysters, which Richard Howard's oysters had the right to do. And that right indeed is underpinned by the public trust doctrine. So the argument is the doctrine does not only confer a right on Richard Howard's oysters to catch oysters, but obligations 
on the defendant as representative of the Crown to protect and conserve those waters in a fit ecological condition. My feeling, I suppose, is that this argument is going to run up against the force of legislation. But before I get on to that, perhaps we could remind ourselves of the state of play in English law and comparatively. The New Haven port case, which you mentioned, concerned the registration of a beach within a harbour area as a town or village green under the Commons Act 2006. The Port Authority had appealed a decision at first instance, which had upheld the County Council in having registered the beach as a town or village green. The beach, I'm not surprised they did appeal, because the beach was part of the operational land of the harbour and was owned and operated by the Port Authority. The court considered, but didn't actually determine, the issue of the public's right to use the foreshore the relevant bylaws permitted by implication the public to use the beach for leisure activities. And the case was ultimately determined and succeeded on the basis that Parliament had conferred on a statutory undertaker powers to acquire land compulsory and to hold and use that land for defined statutory purposes. And there was therefore a clear incompatibility between the port's statutory function in relation to harbour and the registration of the beaches at Town Village Green. You couldn't have both. The public trust doctrine is considered in the judgment of the Supreme Court, although I have to say not terribly conclusively. Paragraph 28, Lloyd Neuberger referred to what's termed in Horsbury's laws a public right of navigation and of fishing in the sea, and writes ancillary to it. But as you pointed out, that case was really concerned with the public's rights of recreation, not fishing, the rights to use the foreshore for bathing and the sorts of familiar activities that people get up to on a beach. So that was really all that Lord Nordberg said about it. Lord Conworth then noted that more recently, in a New Jersey case called Borough of Neptune City, the New Jersey court referred to the roots of the public trust principle in Roman jurisprudence, which had held that by the law of nature, the air, the running water, the sea and the shores of the sea were common to mankind, similar language to Bracton, and had extended the public rights in tidal lands to recreational uses, which include bathing, swimming and other shore activities. That approach, that extension by the New Jersey court had also been approved in another case, Matthews and Bay Head Improvement Association in New Jersey, where the court had gone on to consider the extent of the public's interest in privately owned sand beaches, in particular, the public's right to cross those beaches to gain access to the foreshore where they had their rights. And the court and also a firm concept they thought was already implicit in case law, that reasonable access to the sea is integral to the public trust doctrine. So you can't cut people off from having access to the sea to exercise their public rights. So having taken on board all of that comparative material, Lord Carnworth at paragraph 130 summarised his review 
as being that on the one hand, for the apparently universal recognition of the recreational use of foreshore in practice, but on the other hand, for the continuing uncertainty in many jurisdictions as to the legal basis for that use and the wide variety of legal methods, statutory or judicial, used to resolve it. And he noted that the development of the law in New Jersey was of particular interest as an illustration of how the law in this country might have developed and might yet develop if the view of the dissenting Mr Justice Best back in the 1820s prevailed over the majority in the, in the court. So I suppose the best way to put it is it's really leaving the door open to the application of public trust doctrine, certainly not shutting the door on it. It's saying that there are various jurisprudential bases for it. But I think actually, if you're looking to deploy the doctrine in the future, quite a promising starting point, probably. And do you think in light of those jurisprudential bases for the doctrine that the particular claim is likely to succeed, so the claim brought by the Marine Conservation Society? Well, this is where I think it gets more difficult for the claimants. Let's just assume that the public trust doctrine does apply to fishing in that, as with recreation, there's a right to commercially fish for oysters. Assume that the public trust doctrine is in play. But it's a big step, isn't it, going from that to say that there is a guarantee of any particular level of water quality being secured by the crown. Okay, you may have the right to bathe, but it doesn't follow that the bathing will necessarily be aesthetically pleasurable, given the state of the sea. It's even more of a big step, I would say, when this is within a very highly regulated statutory scheme to manage sewage. The sewage plainly has to go somewhere, and the scheme is subject to the Environment Agency permitting or not permitting, under various conditions, sewage overflows to take place. Now, if those overflows are permitted, then it seems to me there are very real difficulties which the courts will be alive to in allowing individual claims based on the public trust doctrine to dictate the environmental and economic decisions made under that comprehensive scheme of legislation. And I think the courts are going to say, most likely, I may be proven wrong, but most likely that private law claims are not the way of regulating this matter. I can see that and certainly we'll return to private law claims in our next episode. But just in terms of then taking a step back, do you think public interest judicial reviews can contribute to addressing climate change? I think they can, of course, in the right cases. I think relatively few of the claims probably will contribute, but some undoubtedly will. I think one thing we may see is more and more cases on mitigation and adaptation, which is going to become increasingly important, I think. For example, in relation to sea level rise, managed retreat, effect on species and protected habitats, and so on. Also, I think one can see possibly more arguments based on irrationality around alleged inconsistency in decision-making. If a decision-maker takes inconsistent approaches. For example, in the Protect Dunsfold case, 
where the court has granted judicial review permission to make a challenge around a planning permission for exploratory oil and gas wells in Surrey. One of the grounds of the challenge alleges the Secretary of State adopted an inconsistent approach by taking into account downstream economic benefits from the development, but not the downstream climate impacts. So it said, effectively, you're not really comparing like with like. You're taking something out of the equation on one side, which makes it a, an unfair or perhaps in legal terms, rational comparison. And I think that looking through the climate change lens may possibly expose irrationality arguments that can be wrong, if that makes sense. Yes, no, absolutely. Just picking up on that first point you made about mitigation and adaptation, our listener may have noticed that at the end of April, the National Infrastructure Commission and the Committee on Climate Change wrote a joint letter stating that Ofgem should be given further powers to look at adaptation and mitigation in the context of climate change. So it's a point I think we may pick up on in future episodes when we think about the role of regulators in all of this. But in terms of then your second point about looking at irrationality arguments through the climate change lens, um, I certainly think the same can be said when looking at the inconsistency between national policy statements and individual planning decisions. So if one looks at the Jet Zero strategy, for example, the government sets out therein that it's committed to growth in the aviation sector whilst meeting climate change obligations. And what's interesting is that it specifically sets out how environmental considerations should be considered in the context of individual planning decisions. So in respect of, for example, airport expansion, a paragraph 3.62, for example, it says that applicants should provide sufficient detail regarding the likely environmental and other effects of airport development to enable communities and planning decision makers to give these impacts proper consideration. Indeed, the Jet Zero strategy emphasises the strategy itself and the flight path for future strategic framework for aviation are material considerations in the context of proposed airport development. So those points set out paragraph 3.61, 3.63. Yet, going back to the case we discussed earlier, namely the BAANC case, so the Bristol Airport expansion case, one of the principal issues was how aviation emissions should be treated in that case. And indeed, Mr Justice Lane, applying the principles from the case of Goessa against Eastleigh Borough Council, held that the inspector's interpretation of the relevant local plan policies was reasonable. They were entitled to conclude that local and national policy indicated that aviation emissions should be dealt with at a national level, notwithstanding what is said in the Jet Zero strategy, and that there is sufficient scientific uncertainty about the calculation of non-CO2 emissions, that their exclusion from the EIA was neither irrational nor unusual. Yeah, we come back to irrationality again, don't we? It's the perennial topic. But I think there's another interesting point in that case, which is the extent to which a decision maker in the context of planning decisions should assume that the Secretary of State will comply with his or her legal duty under the Climate Change Act. That's quite an important point. And if you come back to the National Planning Policy Framework, paragraph 188, you see the statement that planning decisions should assume that 
other regimes on pollution control will operate effectively. And the where a planning decision has been made on a particular development, the pollution control authority shouldn't revisit the planning aspects through their pollution control decision making. So that enshrines the principle from the 1990s Gateshead Metropolitan Borough Council case, which concerned the waste incinerator, where the Court of Appeal held the Secretary of State was entitled to assume that the parallel regime of control for incinerators would operate effectively. But of course, that presupposes that there is an effective parallel regime for that Gateshead principle to hold good. And in the Bristol case, the claimant advanced the submission um, that paragraph 188 doesn't require a planning authority to assume Secretary of State would have acted within the time span of carbon budgets to take the action required in order to discharge their responsibilities under the legislative scheme for climate. And in support of that, they drew an analogy with cases on air quality, where you have air quality goals that are to be achieved, but the courts have said there's no requirement to assume that those will necessarily be achieved. It's called Gladden Developments Limited. However, this Justice Lane didn't accept that analogy because he said decision making in the sphere of air quality is significantly different from greenhouse gas emissions from aircraft. Those emissions from aircraft are controlled at national level, pursuant to the framework of the Climate Change Act, whereas the local air quality decisions rest on many decisions by disparate local authorities with no central body. And the claimant had furthermore accepted in that case that the statutory scheme on emissions trading was a, a scheme, a separate regime to which paragraph 188 of the National Planning Policy Framework applied should be assumed that would effectively deliver what it was due to deliver. And the judge said, well, you can't separate out the emissions trading scheme from the rest of the regime under the Climate Change Act and say somehow the scheme on aviation emissions is different because it would lead local planning authorities into an area of national policy with which they aren't directly Concern. So, effectively, a bit of a turf war between separate states with governments responsible for aviation emissions. It's not something which uh, local authorities should get into in second guessing how the Secretary of State is going to perform and trying to effectively do something about it themselves. That would simply not be manageable. I've got some sympathy with that. Yes, absolutely. Although, it does appear that there's potentially then a kind of a gap, isn't there? Whereas the national policy says should be left to local planning decisions and then the local planning decision makers say it should be left to government. Yes, I can see that. Stephen, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on expert analysis in the context of these kinds of challenges because often they do present difficulties, particularly for claimant campaigning organisations and individuals particularly given that a lot of this litigation is concerned with the modelling of future emissions and how you then actually measure the impact of any proposed measures. And indeed, as I'm sure our listener is aware, there is generally a wider margin of appreciation 
in decision-making involving the application of scientific, technical, and predictive assessments. And that comes from the case of Mott and the Environment Agency, which was upheld in the Supreme Court in 2018. What tips would you give a campaigning organization or an individual who wish to bring a public interest judicial review, but who face seemingly impenetrable expert analysis or modeling by or relied upon by a decision maker? I think, unfortunately, they often will face exactly that. And they will almost certainly face square on the case of Mott, which is now invariably cited, I would say, by defendants in these sorts of cases. So I think they need to be realistic about what they can achieve. We can see from some cases it's not impossible to find some obvious flaw in the expert advice which the government or decision maker has received, which a judge might be induced to understand, in which case that flaw would extend to the decision relying on it. However, plainly it would need to be a very clear and really incontrovertible error. That's very difficult, I think, in the context of climate change litigation, because all of the expert analysis tends to be based on modelling, predictive analysis, the exercise of evaluative judgment, discretion as to inputs, assumptions to be made, and so forth. In the case you mentioned earlier about investment in the LNG project in Mozambique, one of that project's aims was to help Mozambique move away from using coal and oil. And the particularly difficult question in that case was whether and to what extent gas from the project would replace more polluting fossil fuels and over what timescale. I mean, that's exactly the sort of evaluative judgment, fact-sensitive type question with some expert overtones to it which is going to fall within the realm of Optum, the Environment Agency. So what plainly won't work is entering into, or trying to enter into, I don't think you'd be allowed to anyway, the realm of conflicting expert evidence, which judicial review simply isn't forum to address. And we can see that from numerous cases, but to give one example, the divisional court decision in Heath Row. So... I think it's important to emphasise also that there is a spectrum of review on irrationality. It's all irrationality, but there is the degree of the margin of appreciation given to the decision maker. And in the divisional court, in the Heathrow case, the divisional court said the degree of the margin will, of course, depend on the circumstances, but where a decision is highly dependent upon the assessment of a wide variety of complex technical matters by those who are expert in such matters and or were assigned to the task of assessment ultimately by Parliament, then the margin of appreciation is going to be substantial. And that will, they said, be an important consideration in that case when looked at some of the grounds of challenge relating to matters of technical judgment and expertise, modelling and predictive assessments, some of which were made by expert bodies or by the Secretary of State assigned to make such assessments on the basis of expert evidence. So I think where the decision maker has got the backing of experts, might be the environment agency, might be experts, it might be 
modelers commissioned to, to do the work and so on. You're getting into that spectrum of difficult to challenge exercises of discretion, judgment, expert knowledge. The court also said, well, does that spectrum have any additional bearing on the intensity of review? I think what's quite helpful is they categorised it as three ways in which that spectrum approach might be brought to bear. I think it's well worth analysing these for the benefit of complaints. First, it may require the court, the court said, to apply considerable caution to challenges on matters of judgment. So they're going to look at these sorts of challenges with a bit of a this judicial eye, I think, with a lot of caution and scepticism. Secondly, depending on the nature of the ground of the challenge, it may affect whether that ground is laid out. Now, the point about the nature of the ground of challenge, the court said on that point, some grounds may be of a hard-edged nature, the legal merits of which aren't affected by the fact that you're in a, a policy-making context on the wide spectrum. So you may be in a quite a wide policy-making area, but actually the particular question at issue may be of a hard-edged nature. So as part of making that very broad policy-like decision, you may, or the decision-maker may, misinterpret provision in the planning of 2008 concerning their powers. They may fail to satisfy procedural requirements. They may completely overlook or fail to address a legally mandated matter. Those will be pretty clear-cut grounds. The court won't have any difficulty in looking at those. But other grounds of challenge, the court said, may relate to subjects which form part of a mix of considerations in the development of policy. And there, the court said, it may be helpful to consider where the target of challenge lies on that policy spectrum. And you might have polycentric questions referred to as in MOT, where they're really very difficult questions, bringing together a whole load of interlocking factors involving the exercise of judgments. And that may go to the question, the court said, of not only whether an error has been made, but also whether there's been a material error of law, how much is the law at all involved in this exercise. The third point they made was that the spectrum analysis may be relevant to the question of the grant of relief where a grant of challenge has been successful. So they said in the divisional court judgment that where a grant of challenge is made out and the question of relief is being considered, it may assist the court to consider where the legal error sits in relation to that policy spectrum and indeed as part of that public interest considerations viewed as a whole. So that would arise, for example, the court said, where the complaint relates to failure by the Secretary of State to address a subject covered in a consultation response or irrationality in the treatment of a particular subject. So I think what you have to do is really try and look at this spectrum of approaches to work out, well, where exactly does the failure which has been found exist 
sit on that spectrum? Is it so hard-edged that relief must be given? Or is it something which is rather softer in nature? So I think that's quite a long answer, but I think it does illustrate really the importance of payments of really analysing very closely what it is you're challenging. I think that's a point which we made in either the first or second of these podcasts. That needs to be done really at the outset. So, Stephanie, I hope that's helpful as an answer. Yes, thank you, Stephen. Certainly a lot of food for thought, as you say, kind of really identifying those hard-edged issues of law, which would obviously maximise the chance of success in these kinds of challenge. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I think next time we're going to look at the role of regulators and potentially private law claims as well. But thank you for all your insights. They're hugely helpful. Thank you, Stephanie.